Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to our sermons as we walk through the book of Ephesians together as a church. During the weeks of October 31st, November 7th, and November 14th, we experienced some audio issues in the recording of our podcast. We wanted to go ahead and apologize for the inconvenience, but we also wanted to provide you with these sermons in case you were wanting to keep up from home. Thank you so much, and we hope you enjoy today's sermon. So today we're going to be in Ephesians 3. We're going to continue onwards, walking through the entire book, learning it as God speaks to us through ways that at the Church of Ephesus. One other note about saying, I'm, I'm not, uh, I know you, you, this is probably a surprise to some of you guys, but I'm, I'm not much of an electrician. Uh, when I say I'm not much of an electrician, I mean I can change a light at the house and I can mess with a few wires and sometimes I get it right in the house. But my dad, uh, Stan, the man, is a true electrician. Um, he is one of those guys that can kind of like fix everything and it kind of makes me mad because I wish I could do that. No one my age knows how to do any of those things anymore. So uh, sometimes I pretend that like, I can do what like, he can do. And so the basics, like the basics, so if you're an electrical engineer here, don't judge me. If I get this wrong, but the basics for the home is that every house, you got this thing, it's called a power pole, right? Everyone know what that is? Okay, you have this power pole with a transformer and these power lines that run to it. And if you've done the right thing and paid your bills, you're going to have power sent to your house. And when you have the electricity in your home, you can do all sorts of things. You can turn the lights on, you can use appliances. Because the purpose of the power line was fulfilled to your home. See, the, the church has an electrical current that is running through. And it leads not to a light turning on, but it leads to worship. This energy, this current that runs through it, when the church is being the church, coming together as one, the power result is the completion of this circuit that leads to all of us praising God together. And this happens in the church. You see, God has a purpose for why he has brought us together as one today. It has everything to do with his glory and the worship of his name. See, today is not so much about you and I as it is about Jesus. Him inviting us in to his story and his glory and his worship. And so this day, the the worship, the the baptism, everything from sharing coffee together, all these different things that happen are done to the glory of the Lord. And this is a congregation as a way of worshiping him. This is what the church does. And so Paul finishes his side thought in chapter 3 by explaining why the glory of God and the church go hand in hand. And today you will see how your engagement in this church family leads to the praise of his name from you to even the angels of the universe. And so what we're going to see is that through the church, all of creation glorifies So I want you to look with me in chapter 3. We're going to start together in verse 7. Paul writes, Of this gospel, I was made a member, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring the light for everyone that is 
in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in them. So I ask you not to lose part over what I'm suffering for you, which is your Lord. Let's pray together and then we will unpack this passage. God, I pray that in this moment, that you will orient our hearts to see that this gathering, that this church, the way that you have brought us together is for the glory of your name. And see that all peoples would worship God, I pray that in, in our hearts today, if our worshipful mindset, the posture of our hearts right now is far from you, I pray that you would show us and lead us how we as a church can faithfully glorify you and worship you as you lay out here in this passage. So God, be with us now. I pray that you would speak to us in this moment through your word and that you would grow us as disciple makers of Jesus in this. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. So, as we go through this passage to kind of remind you and catch you up where we were, um, we've been going through all of Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians. is speaking about the theology, what we believe about God. So it dives into the deep end, which we're going to do here in a second, you know, many times. And so we've learned these deep truths of who God is and what he is like and his characteristics, his attributes. We see all of those things in chapters 1 through 3. And then, in chapters 4 through 6, we see the application of this. So, not just who God is, but what we do in response to who God is. And so, in chapter 3, Paul is going to pray for the church of Ephesus. And he's going to pray for this spiritual strength, and we're going to go over that next week. But before that, what he does is he kind of goes off on the side. Before he prays, before he prays for the strength of the church of Ephesus, he goes on the side by explaining the nature of the church, how God is broken down and dividing all hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, and today that all peoples can come together as one church, as one new man, and that from us, we together as one worship. And so in chapter 3, these next few verses finish his explanation as to why this great mystery is in fact a great mystery, the one that he has revealed that all peoples can come to know Jesus Christ. So in verse 7 and 8, what we see going on is God has called Paul into the ministry to preach this grace. He has empowered them on his own accord. So God has taken, remember this, Paul, who is formerly Saul, the persecutor, the murderer, the killer of Christians and believers, and now he is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man who is evil, sinful, now faithfully living for the glory of God, living for his ministry, and he is preaching the gospel left and right. And I want to point out to you the manner in which God chooses to use servants in his kingdom 
As he's going into this worship we're going to see in a moment, Paul describes himself, and it's very interesting. Notice this in verse 8. In verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me. The least of all the saints. And so what's happening is he is describing himself as a lowly servant. He's describing himself as the very least in the kingdom of God. Brutally aware of his past and his own sin. This is why he refers to himself in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 15, as the chief of sinners. How would you like it if your pastor got and said, guys, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst, right? This is what Paul is saying. He said, I'm the least of the saints. I'm the chief of sinners. And yet, God is choosing to use him. Here is the truth. You may be thinking because of your past sin, or because of where you are today, that you are unusable in the kingdom of God. You may think you're unusable, not qualified, the least, that you do not have the skill set to be effective in ministry in the redemptive work of Jesus. Here is the deal. You may be thinking those things, but you are exactly the kind of person Jesus wants to use in his kingdom for You're exactly the kind of person. Right? Paul was not supposed to be the guy, but he was. He said he was the chief of sinners, the least of the saints. And God took him and used him for incredible things. Writing a substantial part of the New Testament, planting churches, making disciples. He did this knowing he was the least of the my favorite part of Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry, this is a late moment, don't judge me, is not that the humans or the powerful elves or the dwarves are the ones that ultimately conquer evil, but in that story, Tolkien writes, it's not them, it's the hobbits. These halflings, the ones you would never think to do such a task, conquering, saving all the middle earth. No one can choose a hobbit for that. Narnia, the lion, which in the wardrobe, is poor little kid, changed the landscape, who rise up. See, more often than not, church folks will shy away from doing great things for God because they feel that that is reserved for the professionals. The preachers, the missionaries, the veterans, no. He has a way, God has a way of choosing the underworld, average people, to go in faithfulness. And see God in a powerful way. If God can use Paul, He can use you. Say yes to what He's asking you to do and watch Him be faithful as He calls you to do. He has given us His call and the Great Commission to go and make disciples, and I believe He will equip you to do so. He used Paul, He can use us. In verse 9, He says, this is a great delight for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? And so this was to go and to bring forth this mystery that God had hidden, which was this journey to save both the Jews and the Gentiles and to make them into one church. So if you don't remember from the previous weeks, that the Jews and the Gentiles are split against each other because of the mark of circumcision, the Jews, the chosen people of God, have this thing to boast in. God takes down this dividing wall of hostility and makes them one. And the great mystery that is revealed is that God will save all 
We'll call it that. No matter the color of your skin, how young or old, all people are welcome to taste the goodness of the gospel. Isn't that good news? No matter what you've done or what you look like, God can save you if you will call on him. This is the great mystery that he revealed to the church, to you. And so this incredible transformation and revelation of the people to God brings glory to his name. And so he goes to verse 10, and I believe that this is where we'll spend most of our time. But in verse 10, chapter 3, he gives the purpose of this unification, the coming together of the church. So I want us to jump into the deep end just for a moment. But look again at verse 10. He says that so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay. So I know that's a lot to take in. But we just want to splice this verse and see the significance here. Because this is incredibly important. So just roll me through this. He says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known. And so you have this word in verse 10, manifold. And it's the only time in the New Testament that you see this word. The only time. And so this word, when you look at it under the surface and see the definition, it makes a multi-sided multi-faceted, dynamic, intricate wisdom that God has. That God is infinitely wise, that his wisdom surpasses all that we can think or understand. It's infinitely greater than the collective wisdom of mankind on the earth. It's manifold. It's vastly more than we can even comprehend. And so in revealing this love to all the people, it is through the church that this wisdom is made known. So you are one of the carriers to make the wisdom of God, this manifold wisdom, made known to others. And he says, well, who is it made known to? Here's where we need to focus for a second. He says, it's not made known to mankind, but it's made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, hang on, who is that? Well, that sounds cool. That sounds very lofty and intricate. See, right here, he's not talking about earthly kings. And he's not talking about government. What he is talking about, watch this, is angels. What? Are you serious? When, you read, when I read this, and he's talking about the heavenly places, notice this, that this key phrase in this verse Heavenly places. When we see this phrase utilized elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that it points not to you and I, but it points to angelic beings. You don't want to leave me. Let me prove it. In Ephesians 1, that we went through a few weeks ago, verse 20, Paul says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1.20. So heavenly places are not earthly places. But they're spiritual, heavenly places, because that's where the throne of God resides. Again, later in Ephesians, we're going to see later on, he refers not to the angels that we generally think of, but fallen angels or demons. Ephesians 6, verse 12, talking about spiritual warfare. It's going to be a wild Sunday. I want to be here. 
He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. And watch this, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. So in chapter 1, referring to the place where Christ is seated, chapter 6, referring to these heavenly places where demons are falling, we see this spiritual warfare. What he is saying is that the manifold, this incredible wisdom of God is not made known just to you and I, but it's made known to the angelic beings. So why on earth does that matter? <laughs> to go all through that to say, what God is doing in our church is for angels. And yes, that's right, where it's going. Here it is. Here is why. By the unifying all peoples in the church, the wisdom of God is revealed, and the angels can praise, and God is glorified. This purpose is in the glory of the Lord. Let me say it one more time. By the unifying, the coming together of Jews and Gentiles, the coming together of all people in the church, this great mystery, the wisdom of God is revealed, and the angels can and the Lord is glorified. This is what's happening right now in our church. As we come together as one, the angels sing. What's the point of angels? We know they exist. We know they're real. But what's the purpose? They're agents of praise. Consider all of creation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. That Paul writes, in Colossians, to the church of Colossae, chapter 1, talking about the church, he says that all things were created by him and for him, talking about all creation, including the angels, for the glory of his name. See, everything points back to the praise of Jesus. Where John writes in Revelation, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, everything is the glory of his name. And when the church is running on all cylinders, the way God has designed the church, proclaiming the gospel of God, coming together as one, the wisdom of God is made known to all creation, and the angels praise his name because of what is happening amongst us. Think about it like this. See, the church is a reflection of heaven, and we've, we've shared this before. But the church is a reflection of heaven. And so one of the ways that we do that and we give this image of what is to come is by singing together. And I, I love that when we sing together as a church, see, and at the end of that final song, Christian sometimes will intentionally step away from the instruments, go back away from those things, and we'll say, hey, just with our voices, let's, let's sing this together. And that's not because we just think acapella is the coolest thing in the world. I love that. But the reason we're doing that is it's a reflection of what we will see in heaven. Our voices praising God. So we get this little taste of heaven here at the well. That's why a singing together is so important. You see, there's something about looking around and seeing others praise God. I know you're not supposed to really do that. I guess you can. But if you look around and see people singing and raising their hands and praising the name of Jesus, and they're doing it as one. See, this gives a moment of transcendence. 
This moment where we are transported not just from a place beyond this earth, but we get this image of what is to come. This glorious, this worshipful, this majestic moment where in the world you don't see this, but in the church, in the gathering of the saints, you get this taste of heaven. And see, when the church, when we gather, and it's comprised of all people, not just the Israelites, not just one group of people, this new wisdom is revealed. This mystery is unpacked. And the angels look upon the church, this picture of heaven, and they worship. They glorify his name. They praise God. And so by you coming together as one, by all people's trusting in Jesus, it magnifies and it praises God. So what we do as a church matters. Because even the angels sing as we come together as one. How cool is that? He has taken this mystery and in his wisdom made it known to all so that the angels can sing the Lord is glorified. He begins to close out this before he prays him. Verse 11, he says, This is according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that God has set his purpose, he intended for the church to be for the praise of his name, that he would receive the glory. And then at the end of verse 12 and 13, he says, In whom we have received boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Paul begins to wind it down before he prays for the church at Ephesus, and this is what we see. That because of our faith in Christ, we can have two things. Two things that he mentions here. We can have, number one, boldness. Number two, we have access. We have boldness and we have access in Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who gives us courage. You can be strong in Christ. Not on your own, but in Jesus you can. You can be strong in Christ. You can be courageous in Christ because he gives you those things. I want to challenge you and encourage you. I want our church to be a bold church. Not one that is afraid of what is out there, but one that boldly lives for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of Jesus' name. And we do not have to fake it. We don't have to fake boldness. I think about that TED Talk that's so famous and that phrase that you can fake it until you make it. Right? And so we take that idea and a lot of times we put that on our walk with Jesus. And a lot of times we do that, we put that on our, our relationship and our ministry in Jesus. That we're just going to fake it, then at some point it's actually going to work. But here is the deal. For a long time, you can do whatever you want in terms of your own efforts or personality or abilities, but it is fake in the end. It is different for the Christian. For the disciple maker of Jesus, you have boldness. Because of Christ in you. His spirit living inside of you. And so if you are afraid of anything in this life, if God presents an opportunity for you to serve in his kingdom, whatever opportunity the Lord provides, remember, it is Christ that makes you bold. He says so right here. And so let's bold your Lord. Be courageous in him. He gives you boldness, and then secondly, he gives you access. Well, that's cool. Well, access to who? It's the Father. He says earlier in chapter 2, for 
Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians chapter 2. And so because of the sinfulness of mankind, there is a gap between God and man. This sinfulness fracturing that and creating that gap. But here is the deal. It has been repaired and reconciled by Jesus. It has been brought together. See, there are moments in life, and then it can be a dry season. I've had them. I would imagine you've had them. Where your walk with Jesus doesn't feel vibrant. It doesn't feel full. And you feel like there's not fruit, no intimacy with God, whatever it might be. We have those seasons. They happen. And so in my life, there's been moments where I just want to look and be like, God, like, where are you? Do you see the issues at hand, God? Do you see the needs? Do you even hear us? Like in my life, I'll feel like an Israelite wandering in the wilderness for 50 million years. I've felt that before, and I bet you have too. But see, when I feel that, I am gently reminded of this. That we have access to God. And that this reminder that we even say every single Sunday, Matthew 28, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, God is with us because Christ has brought us together, and now he is always with us because his spirit lives in us. It's through his spirit and through the Son of God that we have this ample access to God because Christ has brought us together. Just think about it for a second. There are billions of people in the world today, and you, if you are in Christ, have direct access to God. Seriously. That he's not just hovering and you're shooting prayers up in the air, hoping he hears them. It's not that. But with absolute certainty and assurance, God is with you because you have access to him through his son. And so instead of being afraid and alone, God through the son has made the believer bold and he has made the believer confident. Because they have access to God. If you lack one or the other today, let me assure you that you are a moment of prayer away from remembering the fullness of God and what he offers to you as a disciple. And that you do not have to walk away from this gathering today afraid or having no assurance of what God is doing in you. He gives you boldness. And he gives you access with confidence. This is for you. And finally, he closes this before he prays in verse 13 and he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now you may be wondering, like, your glory? Didn't you just say that it's for God's glory? Yes, but what Paul is communicating here is not that we should live for the glory of mankind, but as one commentator said on this passage, that this leads us to know Christ more intimately and to experience salvation more fully. See, Paul's suffering, remember, he's a prisoner in this moment. It is not for them to give up and lose heart over what was happening to them. Ministry gets hard, right? Following Jesus can be hard at times. But it's not that Paul wants them to back away and be afraid and give up. No. It's he says here that his purpose was so that their relationship with Jesus would be made stronger. They wouldn't lose heart. 
Church family, despite the challenges, despite the hardships and hurdles that we face as a family, let me assure you that it's in Christ we do not have to lose hope. We can persevere. We can march forward in this life of Jesus because he is with us always. So as we come to a close, and Christian and Van Master are here, I just want to ask you guys this question. Are you connected to God? See, Christ, on his, in his death and resurrection, has brought back lost mankind, sinners, with a heavenly father. He died on the cross. He took the sin and shame of all peoples, including you and I. And the good news of this gospel message, the great mystery that Paul is talking about in chapter 3, is this. Is that this salvation, this gift that you can receive, that it is freely available for you today. Have you moved from death to life? Has God taken your sin and washed it by the snow? Has God taken your dead heart and given you a new one? Has he taken you as a whole self and made you into a new creation? Has he taken you and adopted you into the family of God? Has he done these things? Because, friend, I want to tell you that today he offers it freely to you. And all he asks is that you trust in him as Savior and Lord. Today, the way you can respond to this is we have this church that worships the glory of God and worships his name, that today this could begin for you for the very first time. And that in this moment, as God calls to you, that you respond to faith to him. I don't know your heart, God does. And if you are here wrestling with that, Jesus, the friend of sinners, is calling you to come home. Be a part of his family to receive his salvation and be made new. When you give your life to Jesus to tie it all together, you're given a new life, and I want you to hear what all of creation does, and specifically what the angels do, because we've been talking about it. In Luke 15, the writer says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner. So as we think about the manifold wisdom of God being made known to all of creation, including these angels, they rejoice when the sinner repents. And so if that is you, I want you to come and trust in Jesus today. Trust in him to be made known. Let's pray together, and then we will worship.